0: If you remember uh, the last time we met before, I think it was like Je- uh, December 12th, something like that, the last time we met, uh, we studied what most people consider, most scholars consider, to be the theological mountaintop of the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 15, if you remember. And in that chapter, in that sweet moment of fellowship that God had with Abram, we learned as, as brothers in Christ amazing things about the, just the basic principles of the faith. We learned about the essentials of the gospel itself. We learned about the nature of what a true and saving faith is. It's not that we're believing in Jesus, but actually that we're believing Jesus to what he has done and has promised to do. It's that resurrection type faith. And we also got a great assurance for the promises of our faith. You remember that that weird dream and vision that Abram had where he saw the uh, the boiling pot and the flaming torch, which was a foreshadow, right, of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. All right there in Genesis chapter 15, an amazing chapter. If you weren't here that time, uh, don't worry about listening to what I said. Just go back and read the chapter because it's, it's just, it's just, it's very important. Listen to what God says. Don't listen to what I say. Great chapter. And after reading it, you'll just see that certainly Abram's faith soared after something like that. Now, we might conclude, right, that if someone had an experience like he did in Genesis chapter 15, there's absolutely no way that he would ever struggle in the faith again, but we would be wrong. We come to Genesis chapter 16, we see in spite of what just happened to him in Genesis chapter 15, once again, his faith and also the faith of his wife Sarah stumbles. Now we might ask the question, why does the Bible even record it? Why not just leave us with the things that we learned about in Genesis chapter 15, the basic nuts and bolts of the gospel? Why is it always this back and forth, this up and down with Abram's faith? It's getting exhausting. It feels like once we get in a great place with Abram, the very next chapter we go back into the valley. Why is the Bible letting us just see the ups and downs of Abram's life? Well, the truth is the reason that the Bible does that is because that's what faith is like, isn't it? Faith isn't easy. We might have a great mountaintop experience with the Lord Jesus Christ, but we will also have valleys. That's just the way that life is as Christians. We are saved by grace, but we're still sinners saved by grace, which means we're not perfect yet. So I think the reason we get Genesis chapter 16, first off, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 10, is to warn us. Because we're no better than Abram, to warn us that none of us are above falling into sin. So to keep us sober-minded, as it were. But I think the most important reason that we get Genesis chapter 16 is to remind us once more that even in our worst moments, in the midst of our worst failures, we can still have hope. And the reason that we can have hope is because our God is a God of grace. We're going to see that in Genesis chapter 16. Go ahead and turn there, starting at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Ten years have passed since Genesis chapter 15. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from having children. So go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Then the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said to Hagar, the servant of Sarai, Where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who had spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahoeroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called, his name, called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 68 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. Like Jerry prayed, we're so grateful for this morning. And in this new year, we're reminded that your mercies really are new every morning. And so, Father, wherever you've been or wherever we plan on going or whatever is going on in our life, we do pray that you close those doors out there, that you would cause us to be still before you, and that you would amaze us with your grace that we see in this chapter. Speak to us, O Lord, for your servants listen. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. James Montgomery Boyce, he's a top-notch theologian, great commentator in many books of the Bible, including Genesis, told a story of when he was a young boy. Uh, When he was about seven, in the closing days of World War II, his dad was an Air Force pilot stationed in Louisiana. Now, because it was close to the end of the war, weeks away from the end of the war, a lot of the pilots were receiving their discharge orders. And now, when those pilots received their discharge orders, because the war hadn't exactly ended yet, they did everything they could to rush, pack up, and hurry home to get the heck out of Dodge. The Boyces did the exact same thing. The morning that the Boyces received their discharge orders, they told their son James, who was seven, After school today, we want you to run home because we're going to pack up and we're going to go back to our home. Now, James was really excited. He hated the military base. Uh, His friends weren't there. It was boring. He was fearful for his father, who was a pilot in World War II. So he was always afraid for his dad, what might happen. And he simply longed for home. So during school that day, what seemed to last for hours, finally the bell rang and he was able to go home. And he did just what his parents told him to. He rushed home with joy in his heart. He ran up the front doorsteps and to his dismay, the front door was locked. A little concerned, he ran around the back of the house to try the back door. And the back door was locked. At that point, he was afraid. He tried a window or two. Finally, he found a window that was open. He climbed in through that window only to find that every single room in that house was empty, confirming his fears that he was alone. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal for grown-ups like us looking back on this story, but try to put yourself in that little boy's shoes, going from empty room to empty room. James, looking back on his life, said that was one of the worst moments of his life because this dreadful terror came over him, this belief that in the rush to pack, and the rush to leave, he had been forgotten. Now, the truth is his parents didn't forget him. They they had a last-minute errand they had to do, and they just weren't expecting James to get home as quickly as he did. But when they drove up into that driveway, what they found waiting on their front doorstep was a shaking, fearful, Desperate little boy who thought he had been abandoned. And this is what James would later say. It's terrible to feel abandoned by your parents. It's even more terrible to feel abandoned by God. In our story this morning, every single of the major characters, Abram, Sarah, especially Hagar, felt abandoned. They felt abandoned by each other because, in fact, they were abandoned by each other. But more importantly, they felt abandoned by God. Now, it's in that emotional context, which is so easy to do that they started making terrible and sinful decisions which had drastic consequences. And we're going to look at both those things, what they did and what happened because of it, to learn from those things. But what I want us to understand is that this chapter, the good news of it, is it's not primarily about human sin and human failure, but rather it is about God's love and his faithfulness in spite of our failures. Now, we're going to see that a big way next week in relation to Abram, how God deals with Abram and Sarah, but this week it's important because we see his love and his faithfulness especially for Hagar. Now, why is that important? Just remind yourself who Hagar is. The most important thing to know about Hagar is that she's not very important. In the grand scheme of things, Hagar was a nobody, all right? She wasn't a matriarch of God's chosen people. All right, she, was, she was barely a minor character in God's grand redemptive story. She wasn't even a follower and a believer of Yahweh at this point. She was this insignificant, disenfranchised pagan woman from Egypt. And yes, she was a sinner, but she had been greatly sinned against and just thrown out with the garbage. And because of that, she felt not only abandoned by Abram and Sarah, but by the God they represented. That's Hagar. Hagar. However, what Hagar is about to find out is that while the people in her life had in fact abandoned her, God never did. In fact, God was with her. In the midst of her suffering, God and his grace drew near. I'm so thankful that this chapter has a lot to do with Hagar because, brothers, (laughs) most of us are like Hagar. Most of us are just like her. In the grand scheme of things, we're a bunch of nobodies. No matter what your position is at work or how well thought of you are by your friends, we're going to be forgotten in the generation. And at the end of the day, we are all insignificant people. A lot of us are at the end of our rope like Hagar was. All of us are unworthy like Hagar was. Some of us feel abandoned, not only by our loved ones, but maybe even by God this morning. If that's you, if any of that's true about you, then this chapter's for you. Because I'm telling you right now, each of you are no less important and no less loved by God than Hagar was. No matter who you are, where you've been, God cares for you. Now there's three things I want us to see in this passage this morning. Three things all having to do with God's sovereignty. First off, God's sovereignty in verse 1 and our problem with it, our problem with waiting. Secondly, we're going to look at our typical sinful solution to our problems, the sin of self-effort. But thirdly, And most importantly, we're going to look at God's sovereignty and his intervention with grace. Okay, so first and foremost, let's just look at verse 1. This is setting the context. Verse 1 is essentially the prologue of this whole thing. In verse 1, we see God's sovereignty and our problem with waiting. Now, am I right to assume that most people in this room just don't like waiting? (laughs) Brian's shaking his head. Nobody likes waiting. I'm glad I'm with normal people. I hate waiting. Okay, most people hate waiting. If they say they don't, they're either a liar or a masochist. No one likes waiting in line. Disney World was one of the worst experiences of my life. All right, it's just awful. I hate waiting. Waiters whose profession it is to wait hate waiting. As a pastor, I'm just going to confess to you, I do not like long sermons. Unfortunately, for your sake, I don't mind giving long sermons. All right, but most people have a problem with patience. Whether it's because it's just that fruit of the Spirit that doesn't come to us naturally, or we live in a world that's this this results driven society, whatever it is, most people do not like patience. Now, if that's true of you as it is true of me, there's something else that's true of you as it is true with me. We're going to have a lot of problems on the journey of faith. If we find it difficult to wait, we're going to find it difficult to live by faith. Now, if you don't believe me, all you got to do is find a concordance, and you'll find the most oft-repeated word with faith in the Bible, or its cognates, is to wait. We see it all over the place. I gave you some examples, Psalm 37, Psalm 130, Isaiah 30, Isaiah 40, and elsewhere. We see time and time again that to live by faith is synonymous with faithfully trusting and waiting on the promises of God. Now it's really interesting, in most of those instances, the promises that were given in the Bible are given to us with no regard to a timetable. So it's not as if God says, Barton, I just want you to wait one day for this, or I want you to wait one month for this. He doesn't even say, Barton, I want you to wait 10 years for this. We are called to wait on the promises of God with the only basis of our waiting being God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises. Now that's difficult. No timetable given. Now, that seems to be the place that uh, Abram and Sarah found themselves in. Remember, they were given this amazing promise back in Genesis chapter 12 that they would be the parents of an heir, which was the seed of the woman through whom God would restore and redeem and bless the world. A lot of time passed since Genesis chapter 12. But then last time we met in Genesis chapter 15, God just assures Abram and tells him, you can, you can bet your bottom dollar that I'm going to fulfill these promises. You can trust me. But then we get to Genesis chapter 16, verse 1, our prologue statement. And according to Alistair Begg, ten long years have passed, which means for ten long years, they suffered in the waiting room of faith. Just longing for that day that God would fulfill his promises. The only basis of their waiting being trusting that God was faithful to keep it. Now, it's in the waiting room of faith that we just look at Abram's life. We see two things happen, not only for him and Sarah, but for everybody that's in the waiting room of faith, especially for us as Christians that was waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. In the waiting room of faith, first off, we see that our character is tried. It's really interesting, from the very beginning of Abram's faith journey, starting back in verses 1 through 3 of Genesis chapter 12, every which way but Sunday, he and Sarah's faith was tested. Their character was tried. Remember, at the very beginning, their faith had to overcome their patriotism and their ties to their family and their tribe and their kindred. At the end of Genesis chapter 12, their faith was tested with life's circumstances, with the deprivations of life and in their instance of uh, famine. In Genesis chapter 13, his courage was tested. At the end of Genesis chapter 14, his faith was tested with with strong spiritual warfare. Remember that the king of Sodom offered him all the money in the world, which if he had accepted that, essentially meant that he was denying the Lord and choosing the ways of the world. But his faith overcame that. But then we get into Genesis chapter 15, and his faith was tested with doubt. Now we're in Genesis chapter 16, and once again, his faith is tested again with waiting on the promises of God. For 10 long years, they waited for that baby. And presumably with every month that passed, their hopes rose and then faltered, and impatience grew. None of us in this room are in Abram's and Sarah's shoes, but all of us knows what it feels like to suffer in the waiting room of faith. Praying for a loved one to come to know the Lord, seemingly to no avail, waiting for good news finally from the doctor, Or maybe it's just just the generic longing for the day that everything sad will be made untrue when Christ returns and makes everything new. We know what it feels like to suffer and long for those things. We know what it feels like as if God is actively in his sovereignty working against our greatest needs and desires as if he has abandoned us. We all know what it feels like to grow older and sadder. And less patient, and we all know what it feels like to struggle with the temptation that they were about to struggle with. But it's in that waiting room of faith, brothers, that our character is tried. Secondly, it's in the waiting room of faith that our reason is tested. Try not to skip over the emotional pain that's happening here. The emotional pain behind the fact that Abram was now 86, which meant Sarah was in her late 70s. Any hope of fertility had long since passed. She is beyond menopause at this point. And even though Abram got those amazing promises and assurances in Genesis chapter 15, he was still a human being. He was still married, which meant every morning he had to wake up and to look into the eyes of her beloved, his beloved, and hear her say, baby, why me? Why is this happening to me? What did I do? Do you think God has forgotten us? What are we supposed to do? Can you imagine how painful that must have been for him? His reason was tested. And as his reason was tested, he was confronted with the choice. Will they allow the questions of their heart to overturn their faith? Or will they allow their faith to overturn the questions and the doubts of their hearts? And as brothers, every time that that we're in the waiting room, which is every day of our life until Christ returns, we are confronted with that exact same question when life hits us in the face. Will we trust in the sovereignty of God, or will we allow our circumstances and the fears of our heart to overturn our faith? Now, unfortunately, Abram and Sarah chose the latter. Okay, so before we get to the good news, let's just see why they did it and what the consequences of it were so that we can learn from it. In verses 2 through 6, we see that the solution, their sinful solution to the problem of waiting was the sin of self-effort. In verse one again, we were presented with the with the problem. They had a problem with waiting. Then immediately Sarah goes her own way and uses Hagar as a tool, as a means to get around the sovereignty of God. Now remember, this is history, this really happened. And as I was thinking through this, I was really trying to imagine how this conversation shook out. Right? I mean, because this isn't a this isn't like a normal everyday conversation between a husband and a wife. What she just proposed to her husband. I mean, it's very strange. Probably the strangest thing you can think of. Right? I mean, how did she even bring this up? Just imagine Ab- Abram's out in the fields doing whatever he's supposed to be doing on a given Tuesday. Then all of a sudden his wife comes up. And he goes, hey baby, how you doing? I'm doing good. Just mending the fields. Hey, listen, here's our to-do list today. Well, let's go ahead and move the couch from the living room to the, to the den. I think that would bring more light into the room. I think that's a good idea. Don't forget we're going to your mother's house later today. I want you to sleep with my uh, servant Hagar. I know yeah, dinners at six. I mean, <laughs> like, like, how does she roll that out? I mean, whatever, however she said it, I guarantee the only thing our boy Abram heard was, hey, I want you to sleep with Hagar. But what is a husband supposed to say to a wife that proposes such a thing? It's actually an easy answer. The answer in that situation, brothers, is always no, okay? That's like marriage 101. <laughs> but the crazy thing about this whole thing, even crazier than her plan, was that Abram agreed to it. In verse 2, we see that phrase, listened to. In other translations, that means agreed to. Now, what's really interesting about that, that phrase is only used in one other place in Genesis. you all know where that is? It's used in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam agreed to his wife's plan. (laughs) Moses is just letting us know how all this thing is going to end. Hint, not very well. But just like we see in Genesis chapter 3, in the fall of man, things happen in rapid succession. She devises this plan. Abram accepts this plan, agrees to it. He executes the plan, and the plan works until it doesn't. Now, before we shred this whole thing apart and see how sinful it is, I just kind of want us to humanize Abram and Sarah for just a moment. Okay, because this didn't just come out of left field. There was real circumstances that led them to make this decision. And just thinking about it on the surface, it's kind of reasonable. First off, they had marital issues. They had marital problems. I mean, any husband knows how difficult it is to deny the wishes of a suffering wife. You know, that phrase, a happy wife equals a happy life, that's a a saying for a reason because for the most part, it's true. She was miserable, which made him miserable. And he would do absolutely anything just to alleviate this suffering from his wife, this suffering from his family. And this seemed like a reasonable idea that his wife was behind. She even concocted the idea. Why not do it just to deliver us from this hell that we're in? We can relate to that, right? Secondly, even though this was an icky plan, it was also a culturally accepted one. The Hemerati Code was the law of the land back in the ancient Near Eastern times, and during those times, it was a perfectly acceptable and legal way to gain children. If you were rich enough to have servants, you could marry one of those servants as a concubine. She would become a second wife, and if she were to have children, legally speaking, those children would belong to the first wife, in this case, Sarah. Right? So they had this very serious situation. They had reasonable options available to them, and they believed that this was a reasonable solution to meet the problem they faced. And it seemed reasonable. But what Moses makes clear in his organization of Genesis chapter 16 is that while that is a reasonable solution, make no mistake, it is a sinful one. Why? Well, it's just plain on the page. First off, they trusted themselves over God's sovereignty. In verse 2b, Sarah says, "...the Lord has kept me from having children." All right, now we can, we can spin that in a positive way. I mean, because rightfully she concludes that God is sovereign over her life and everything having to do with her womb, every aspect of her life, God is sovereign. And we know that to be true. God is sovereign over every aspect of our life, the things that happen to us, the things that he prevents us from having, whatever deprivation that he has allowed us to experience for however long, God is sovereign over those things. So she rightfully concludes that, but she wrongfully concludes that God is not on her side. She doesn't believe that God works out absolutely everything for the good of his own people. She believes that God is actually against her. And you can hear the contempt in her voice. She says, the Lord has kept me, prevented me, kept me from having children. You can just imagine the thoughts that went through her head. God cannot be trusted He's not out for my good. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't love me. How could he possibly allow this to happen? Abram, I mean, my goodness, we have to take care of this. We have to to develop our own plan because we can't count on the Lord. She trusted her own self-effort. He trusted their own self-effort over the sovereignty of God. Brothers, how often in the waiting room of faith have we actually believed that God was working against us to the point where we try to take matters in our own hands? You know, this is a marital issue, so let's just think about relationships. For those of us who aren't married, but really want to be married, but don't understand why God hasn't provided for us a wife, how often have we struggled with the temptation to dismiss the standards that God has for us and whom we should marry? Or as men, maybe we're struggling with our wives, maybe there's no more intimacy in our marriages, and we're men, we have needs, so we start to look elsewhere. From a 30,000 foot view, those are, those are silly rationales. But in the midst of those things, right, they start to make sense a little bit. They seem like rational answers to our problems. But brothers, remember what God says in Proverbs six eighteen. One of the things that God hates most is when his people do not trust his sovereignty. And instead devise wicked plans in their hearts. This was sinful because they trusted their own self-effort rather than the sovereignty of God. It was also sinful too because they trusted their own self-effort over God's revelation. This may have been perfectly legal, but it certainly broke God's law. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 we're told that the marriage or covenant of marriage rather is between one man and one woman. There's no place for polygamy or concubines. Jesus in the New Testament says there's no place for lust in our heart. Right, but they trust themselves over God's revelation. So rather than wait and listen for the Lord in his word, they rush and ignored the Lord in his word. Rather than asking what is right in the situation, they asked what works. And isn't that the same temptation that we have in a results-driven society? <laughs> and how often, how much pain and toil and sorrow and regret will we've had avoided in various moments in our life had we simply asked God, what is right here? rather than what works. They trusted themselves over God's revelation. But ultimately, brothers, this was sinful because they trusted themselves over God's gospel. This is what Paul makes clear in Galatians 4. He refers to this story in Galatians 4 to explain and to show us how we are not to approach a relationship with God. So he looks at the two children in question. Ishmael, who was born to Hagar, he says that's a child that's born in the flesh. That's a child that's born in self-effort. But then he looks at Isaac and says, that's a child that's born of the promise, a child that is born of faith. Now to make a long story short, the point he's getting at is that Abram and Sarah sinned because rather than trusting in God's sovereign grace, they trusted in their own works righteousness. Rather than looking to God for salvation, they look to themselves. That's what Paul says, Genesis chapter 16 teaches. They look for themselves for salvation rather than God. Now just remember what Abram learned in Genesis chapter 15. He learned the basic nuts and bolts of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what a true and saving faith is. How in the world could he now, just one chapter later, start looking to himself? The reason is the same reason that we do it all the time, isn't it? they refused to believe that God was more dedicated to their good and was more aware of what their good was than they were. Isn't that why we sin? Isn't that why we choose to go our own way? Why we refuse to look at the Lord and rather look to ourselves as our own saviors and justifiers? Because we trust in God and his gospel way too little and we trust in ourselves way too much. That's why this was sinful and deplorable. They trusted themselves over God's sovereignty, over God's revelation, and most importantly, over God's gospel. Now, before we get to the good news, brothers, I want us just to pay attention to the consequences of their actions. I mean, it's a holistic breakdown. Uh, One scholar, I forget who it was, said that if we learn anything from this passage— Let us know and always remember that God's work done God's way always leads to God's blessing. But let us always remember when we rely upon ourselves, it will only lead to ruin. I think that's an important takeaway for the first six verses, right? Because Moses uh, does everything he can to parallel this story to the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve supplanting God's plan for their own led all of mankind into ruin. The parallels are significant. I mean, just think about this. First off, you have the false blame of Sarah. Remember, Sarah's the one who concocted this whole plan. But when it went belly up, just like Eve before her, she never blamed herself, but rather she blamed God, and then she blamed her husband. And it's really no laughing matter. It's no small thing. I mean, this lady was hot. She called down the curses of God on her husband. There were violence in her words. Where there was once unity, there is now division in this marriage. And that's what sin does usually when we quit trusting God and trust ourselves and our plans go belly up. We start to blame and punish everyone else. If not God, the closest person next to us, usually a spouse if you're married. And I got to tell you, one of the most heartbreaking experiences I have as a pastor and counselor is when I have a couple right across the, the room from me. Who I know at one point, they used to be the apple of each other's eye, each other's closest confidant during seasons of adversity, but now they're only seeing each other and treating each other as if they're enemies. That's what's happening here. Their family was broken beyond human repair. But let's not forget about Abram, all right? This guy's a moron. What did Abram do? In his false neutrality, he abdicated his responsibilities as a husband, just like our first parent, Adam, did before him. He did this towards Sarah. Just think about Sarah. Here's Sarah in her pain. She develops this crazy plan, this sinful plan. But she's not an evil woman. This was birthed out of her confusion, out of her heartache, out of her sorrow. And she develops this sinful plan. But because Abram didn't say anything, because it was easier, he encouraged her faithlessness. A man who was called to be the spiritual leader of his family allowed his wife to fall into sin. But then, of course, also you have his second wife, Hagar. Not a biblical marriage, but still they're married. And he's called to protect her and to guard her. But as soon as there's strife with his first wife, Abram, again, in false and trial, he says, hey, I don't have anything to do with this. She's your servant. Do with her what you please. And she's thrown out with the garbage. I mean, how coward is this? How cold is this? Put yourself in Sarah's shoes to wake up one day to realize that your husband does not care enough about you to speak truth to you because it's easier. Put yourself in Hagar's shoes. You didn't want anything to do with this whole situation, but you were thrust into it. Now, here's this man who's supposed to lead you and provide for you, but now he's treating you like just simply an object, an animal to be discarded. Brothers, everybody needs a Nathan, right? If you remember our Psalter lesson in Psalm 51 when we studied the Psalms together, everybody needs a Nathan. And as men, we are spiritual leaders called to be the Nathans to our wives, to our kids, and those that we lead in our churches. But when we have an opportunity to speak truth, but we don't do it because it's easier, and it is easier, the only thing we make really easy is for our loved ones to fall into sin. That's what happened here. Then, of course, you have Hagar, that poor woman. Hagar was the least responsible for this whole mess, but her hands weren't really clean in this, right? Because what does she do? She has has false pride. Maybe out of a heart of retaliation, I don't know, it's reasonable for her to want vengeance, but... In that retaliatory heart, she, she compounds Sarah's suffering and her pain by mocking her infertility. Essentially, by cursing her, having contempt for her. Again, sin does that. It, it calls even the least responsible people into a cyclical, violent thing. It's just, it's just this web that traps people's sin. That's what sin does. We see that throughout the scriptures. So her hands weren't clean, but make no mistake about it, she was the worst victim, the greatest victim. Right? Because after Abram's uh, false neutrality, what does, what does Sarah do? Uh, Sarah uh, treats her harshly, we see. He treats her harshly. Now that's very important because that's the same word that describes the oppression the Jews received by the Egyptians in their moment of slavery later in Exodus. That's how Hagar was being treated by Sarah. So just imagine that you're her, your servant. Now you're being abused, probably by your mistress, Sarah. You've been betrayed by the people who are supposed to protect you and lead you. And you've been abandoned by the two people who are supposed to be a light to the world. And it was so intolerable, she self-imposes exile because of it. She, she fled from them and she also fled from the God they represented. Brothers, this thing was a disaster. Because they quit trusting the Lord and they started trusting themselves. They didn't set out to destroy their family. They didn't set out to destroy Hagar. But everything, because of their sin, was ruined and beyond human repair. Now, before we move on to the good news, there are three things I think we can take away from this. Just three principles, reminders. First off, even though the consequences of our sin, we might never know them until they happen, they will happen. Moses says in Numbers 32, that when we sin against the Lord, our sin will find us out. Now, that's not a threat. It's just factual. One of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis is, is that God cannot give us happiness because such happiness, or rather, God cannot give us happiness apart from himself because such happiness does not exist, which is what Abram and Sarah are trying to find. They're trying to find happiness apart from the Lord. But God, in his severe mercy, allowed them to experience the full weight of their consequences, the consequences of their sin, not to punish them, but rather to bring them back to himself which God does in His mercy. Sometimes He allows us to experience the consequences of our sin, not to punish us. We don't have a spirit of slavery or condemnation. We're in Christ. We're secured. But sometimes He allows us to experience the full weight of the consequences of our sin so that we might finally return to Him. It's a mercy, but it is painful. The second thing we learn is that we're most vulnerable to sin and growing impatient with God when we're not having fellowship with God, right? Because Abram had that great experience in Genesis chapter 15, but remember, 10 years have passed. and There's no mention of worship. There's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of fellowship. There's no mention of a quiet time. Which just proves us once again that when our eyes are not on the Lord, they're going to fall somewhere else when we're not having fellowship with the Lord, we're going to start trusting something else. We're most vulnerable to sin and growing impatient with God when we're not having fellowship with God. But most important, this is what we learn. Against the backdrop of this broken and sinful family, we see that God is in the business of loving, unlovable people. And he's in the business of redeeming what is unrepairable. And no matter who you are or where you are, we all need to be reminded of this. In verses 17, or rather 7 through 16, we see God's sovereign intervention of grace. Brothers, I can't think of a more jacked up Jerry Springer situation that we've read about so far in the family of Abram. But it's in all this mess that we learn two things. There's nothing within ourselves that evokes the love of God. There's nothing that you have done or will do that evokes the love of God for you. The only thing that evokes God's love for you is his grace, brothers. You didn't earn his love. He chose to love you. And because he chose to love you, you can't lose his love because you never earned it in the first place. That's what we see here. Nothing within ourselves evokes God's love and his grace and his mercy. He simply chose to give it to us. The second thing that we learn, especially with regard to Hagar, is that it doesn't matter who you are, how insignificant you are, how lowly you think you are, where you've gone, where you've been, brothers, God sees you and he cares for you. Every single one of you. And we see this in life of Hagar. First off in verse 7 in this unexpected meeting that she has with the angel of the Lord. I'm not sure what she was expecting when she ran away from Sarah and Abram and God. I'm not sure what she was expecting when she stopped and got that pail of water right before she crossed into Egypt. But I guarantee she wasn't expecting what happened in verse 7. She was found by the angel of the Lord. This is unbelievable. This is the first time that angel is used in the Bible. We did talk about cherubim in the first couple of chapters in Genesis. But this is the first time the actual word angel is used. Now what does angel mean? It means messenger. Okay, so this angel is a messenger. A messenger of who? A messenger of the Lord. This is an angel representing God himself. Now, brothers, try to wipe away whatever media depiction of an angel you have, okay? This isn't touched by an angel on PAX TV. This isn't a chubby little baby. This is an angel of the Lord. In glory and majesty. Most scholars say that this was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So you can imagine, here's this woman, this pagan, who's hurt and she's broken. She thinks no one's caring about her, and she's leaving. She's going back into Egypt, and all of a sudden, she sees a glorious vision of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. This is unbelievable. There's two things I want to see about this unexpected meeting. One, simply, God found Hagar. There's not another precious word, a more precious word than the word found in this chapter. Just think about it. Hagar did not know God. She did not want to know God. She was running away from God, yet God in his grace intervened and found Hagar. Which is so encouraging and comforting because it reminds us right, that we cannot outrun the grace of God. Yes, it's true that sin leads us away from the Lord, but not so far from where the Lord cannot still rescue us like he did Hagar. He found her, and not only that, he spoke to her. That's a big deal because in the ancient Near Eastern times, listen, deities did not speak to women, let alone call them by name. But what does our God do? The one true and living God. He calls her by name. Can you imagine hearing your name spoken off the lips of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ? She heard it. Our God dignifies lowly people, which is so comforting because it reminds us, no matter how lowly we think of ourselves or how lowly other people have made you feel, you're never too lowly for God to come near to you and care for you. <laughs> and of course, he, he finds Hagar and he speaks to her for the ultimate purposes of calling her home. The questions he asked her, aren't those reminiscent of the questions that God asked Adam and Eve in the garden and the questions that Jesus asked the woman at the well in John chapter 4? God knew the answer to these questions, brothers. But he asked them for her sake to stir her heart, to penetrate that calloused, broken heart of hers. To awaken her to spiritual realities. Where have you come from, Hagar? What is God asking there? He's asking, what promises are you forsaking, Hagar? Where are you going, Hagar? What's he asking there? He's, why are you running away from me, the promise giver, Hagar? It's not in Egypt. Come to me. Why are you leaving me? God, in his grace, asked her the questions that she needed to hear to open her up to spiritual realities. And he does that in order for her to Repent. He says, I want you to return home. I want you to go and submit to Sarah. Now, a little bit of a caveat here. Listen, even though that would mean her suffering for at least the first bit when she sees Sarah, her lot with Sarah is much greater and much better than it would have been in Egypt. It's a violent, dangerous place, Egypt. Another caveat, this is not God affirming slavery either. We know elsewhere that God hates slavery. In fact, Paul tells us in Philemon that the gospel will break the systems of slavery if God's people actually believe the gospel and follow it. So this is not God affirming slavery. This is simply God bringing Hagar into a position that she might know who he is and be in a position to receive his blessings. Isn't that true in your experiences? I know it is in mine that oftentimes the places of the richest blessings are in the places of our deepest sufferings. I hate to suffer. I hate when you suffer. I hate when my loved ones suffer. And I pray against their suffering. But for a believer, there's something sacred and holy about their suffering. So sacred, in fact, it's almost hard to watch, not because you don't want to pay attention to it, you don't want to think about it, but you just know there's something happening there. That God in his grace is using the suffering of that person to bring about something marvelous in that person. Which is what Hagar is about to find out. She's about to find out what Jesus teaches us in his word and by the demonstration of his own life, That when we suffer for God's sake, it will always end in glory. We have an unexpected meeting. Lastly, we have an unexpected, unsought blessing in verses 10 through 12. Friends, the blessing here. (laughs) I'm not going to do it justice. It's amazing. I want you to think about the original audience. Who were they? They were Israel. They are hearing the story from Moses. Who were they? They had just been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They hated Egypt. But what they're about to hear would defy their expectations of how amazing God's love is. I guarantee you when they first heard that that Hagar was being mistreated by Sarah, their matriarch, and that she self-imposed exile and that she was running away, they rejoiced. That is, until they saw how God dealt with Hagar and how did God deal with Hagar, his enemy. He loved her. And this is what God says to Hagar. Hagar. He says, Hagar, you're going to be the mother of a great nation through that little baby boy who's asleep in your belly. Imagine Hagar. She's an insignificant woman. She's a slave. She's an Egyptian. She has no place in God's economy. She's made to feel insignificant. But here's the one true and living God, the preincarnate Christ, who came near to her in her suffering and is blessing her beyond her wildest dreams. Now, it's true, her posterity would not be of the chosen people of God in the Old Testament In fact, God tells her here that your children are always going to be at odds with the chosen people of God, Israel. But we also hear from the Bible, right, in Psalm 145, that God is the creator of all things and he loves all that he has made. Just think about this. God in his sovereign grace knew that the promised seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, through him, the gospel promises, the gospel blessings would not stop with ethnic Israel but would go beyond borders that would go to every nation, tongue, and tribe. And what that means then is that Hagar, while she is not the mother of the physical ethnic children of Abraham, she would become the descendant of millions of spiritual children of Abraham. Because the gospel does not just stay within Israel. It goes beyond borders. It goes to every nation, tongue, and tribe. It goes to the Gentiles in Memphis, and it goes to Muslims in the Middle East. Do you realize that one of the greatest growing churches where we're seeing conversions more than anywhere else is in the Middle East, places like Iran? It's amazing, God's love. She was blessed by this temporal blessing, and there's no way she could have known the spiritual significance of what this meant, but I guarantee you she does now. Amazing blessings, but the most important part of this blessing for our sakes this morning is the name that God gave that baby boy, Ishmael. God hears our afflictions. That was a sacrament for Hagar because every time she saw her boy, she was reminded that God heard her. That God cared for her. And brothers, it's a sacrament to us too. That God hears our cries. He's not indifferent to what causes this pain in our heart. Look how amazing this is. God heard her cries and she wasn't even praying to God. Remember, at this point in her life, she wasn't seeking God. But God still heard her. This is what Charles Spurgeon says. Charles Spurgeon, he says that the significance of this is that though she didn't pray, God still heard another voice. He heard her tears. What that means is that though our sorrow should always be accompanied by prayer, yet even without our prayers offered, the heart of God is always moved by the suffering of those he loves. The same is true of Hagar, and the same is true of you. Brothers, I guarantee you that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're no less important and no less loved by God than Hagar was. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, or what you've done. God sees you, and God cares for you. And Hagar knew what that meant, which is why she responded the way that she did. First off, she responds with joyful worship. After Hagar met the one true and living God, she knew that truly she was insignificant, not because of how others made her feel, but spiritually speaking, she knew that she was insignificant to a just and holy God. She knew that she was undeserving. And here she is having this blessing given to her by the one true God, and she must have thought to herself, Who am I? Of all the people in the world, of all the stars and the moons and the planets created in the cosmos, who am I that this God should look at me? Who who am I that this God should care about little old me and love me and bless me when I first didn't want anything to do with him? Who am I? What kind of grace is this? And because of that, she worshipped God. Most scholars say at this moment she was actually converted. And the reason they say that is because she names God here. Very significant. She is the only person in the entirety of the Bible that names God and she says i have seen which means i have survived i have seen the god who sees me and the god who sees is a god who cares because he's a god of grace as this was happening here she unlike abram and sarah who maligned god's identity and god's character In their own hearts. She rightly saw God as He revealed Himself. He's the God who sees me, which means that He is the refuge for the weak. He is the life giving water to the thirsty. He is the lover of the unlovable. He is the rescuer of the lost. I have seen Him. And He has seen me. And she worshiped Him. And that's not the only thing that she did, she responded with faithful obedience. Even though she knew it was going to cause her suffering, she obeyed God and she went back to Sarah and she suffered in that waiting room of faith. And she did that not because she wanted to earn God's favor and his love, but because she knows that she had already received it. And she believed in her heart. If God was faithful to me then, if God could rescue me out of my lostness, that I can trust that God is going to be faithful to me now in the waiting room of faith. I'm going to trust that God will be with me in my suffering, which of course he is, according to Psalm 46, that God is an ever-present help for those in trouble. He's exceedingly near to the brokenhearted. But not only did she believe that God would be with her in the midst of her suffering, she ultimately believed that God would one day carry her home to glory. A glory, Paul says, is not even worth comparing to our worst sufferings in this life. That's what grace does, brothers. That's what amazing grace does. It frees us from our bondage. It frees us from our fear. And it enables us to trust the Lord in the waiting room of faith. She was amazed by grace. Grace. And brothers, for us on this side of the cross, we have an infinite more number of reasons to be amazed by grace. Are you aware that God sees you right now in this very moment? That when you lay your head down, he hears your cries, whatever they might be. He hears the silent cries of your heart. Are you aware that God knows your name? He's even spoken it in eternity. He knows your name. He knows everything about you. He knows about the dirty thoughts you've had. He knows about the sins you've kept private. He knows about the things that you will do. He knows all of it, yet in spite of all of it, in his grace, he came near, not because you deserved it, but simply because he loves you. And you can know that he loves you perfectly because unlike Hagar, he did not come to you in a vision or in a pre-incarnate form. He came to you in flesh and blood, Emmanuel, God with us, Christ our Savior. And he did that Simply because he chose to love you. (laughs) Jesus came near to you and he came near to me. He, He searched us and he found us when we were lost like the great shepherd. He took care of our greatest problem. He paid for our sin and the penalty of our rebellion against his father. He provided for our greatest deprivation. He gave us his perfect righteousness. As our great high priest, he hears your afflictions because ultimately he has borne every single one of your afflictions. Yes, he calls you now to suffer for him in the waiting room of faith, but only because he has gone before you in suffering. And even though we might suffer a little while in this life, he's given us the great promise, the great assurance that one day he will carry us home to glory. That perfect day where the glory that is revealed to us is not even worth comparing to our worst moments in this life. We will see God, the God who sees us, and we'll hear Him say our name along with the phrase, Well done, my good and faithful servant. This is amazing grace. That God searched for you and found you when you were lost, that He gave you His Spirit that he's dedicated himself to you and he's given you the promise of glory in the day to come. And if he's done all of that, brothers, we can trust him in the waiting room of faith. I chose Amazing Grace because the writer, just like Hagar, was a man who was amazed by grace. John Newton, just like Hagar, was an unworthy sinner. In fact, his rap sheet, as, as Colby alluded to, was a lot worse than Hagar's. He was a slave trader and he was harsh with his slaves. I mean, that's noted, that he was a harsh slave owner. He was a despicable man. But God, but God intervened in his life and saved him. Not just physically, which he did. He was, he was in a horrible storm. He was about to He was about to drown. God saved him. But he also saved him spiritually. He intervened in his life and saved him by grace. And in that moment, when he understood how unworthy he was in light of who God is, but yet still God in his grace and his love chose to save him, he worshipped Christ, he repented of his ways, even to the point where he helped put down slavery in England and Great Britain. And he followed Christ into the waiting room of faith. But we see from his biography that following Jesus brought him great suffering. All of his former compatriots and his friends abandoned him because of his new way of life. He suffered greatly as an abolitionist. He was persecuted. Not to mention all the day-in, day-out sufferings that he experienced as a Christian living in the already-not-yet-waiting for that day when everything sad will be made untrue. But we also see in his biography that just like Hagar, what kept him faithful in the waiting room of faith was that he was amazed by grace. And he writes about it. That grace that saved a wretch like me. That grace that overturned and relieved every single one of my fears, that grace that has brought me thus far, that grace that will ultimately carry me home. And when I've been there for 10,000 years, that grace will be no less amazing than it was the first day I believed. that was his story. And brothers, that was the story of Hagar. And if you're in Jesus Christ, that is your story too. He sees you. He cares for you. And he's shown that by intervening into your life. save you. May that forever be encouragement as we wait for the day to come in the waiting room of faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the gospel of Jesus. We are so unworthy. It's not even funny how undeserving we are of your grace and your love. But we are amazed by the fact that you should love us. Father, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would cause each of us to believe more deeply in the gospel promise of Christ. That you would cause us to see and be joyful in the gospel of Christ. And that you'd help us to share the gospel of Christ with other Hagar's. We love you, O Lord, and pray this in the blessed name of the risen King Jesus, our Savior. Amen.